Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, the discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of all the news out of China, especially if you subscribe to our email newsletter, SubChina Access, or check out subchina.com for all the original reported stories, op-eds, great regular columns, and our growing range of videos and podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I am Kaiser Guo. I'm coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. With Trump finally out of office, the new administration commencing at last, as one might expect, we've seen a number of policy papers drop recently, hoping to shape the direction that Biden and Harris, Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan, and the others named to the new administration's foreign policy team will take when it comes to policy toward Asia. The Asia Society Policy Institute released one recently, but today we're going to be talking with the authors of a different paper, one put out by the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, entitled A New U.S. Strategy in East Asia. The recommendations in it align very, very closely with those that many of our other guests on this program have put forward and uh, that I have found personally very compelling. So unsurprisingly, I read the Quincy recommendations with real relish. My three guests today, the paper's authors, are Michael D. Swain, Jessica J. Lee, and Rachel Esplin Odell, all with the Quincy Institute. Let me introduce each of them in a little more detail. Michael Swain is director of the Quincy Institute's East Asia program. Uh, he has long been a very prominent analyst of Chinese security studies and has a whole bunch of publications on China's defense and foreign policy under his belt. Before joining Quincy, he served as a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, Previously, he was a senior policy analyst at the RAND Corporation. You might recall that last time we had Michael on, it was to talk about an open letter calling for a very different approach to China that Michael had authored along with others in the field that I greatly admire, Susan Thornton, Taylor Fravel, Ambassador Stapleton Roy, and the late, great Ezra Vogel. May he rest in peace. Michael Swain, welcome back to Seneca. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kaiser. Happy to be here. I'm delighted you could join us. I'm also delighted that Jessica J. Lee joins us for the first time. Jessica is a senior research fellow at the Quincy Institute's East Asia program and an expert on U.S.-North Korea relations, uh, who many of you have probably seen on TV or heard on the radio or seen quoted. Jessica cut her teeth in the policy world as a congressional staffer on the Hill, working for the chairman of the House Foreign Relations Committee. Jessica, welcome to Seneca. Thanks for having me, Kaiser. It's great to be here. And last up is someone I've only gotten to know in the past year or so, but who has made quite a splash. Rachel Esplin Odell is a research fellow at Quincy, uh, which she joined after completing her PhD from MIT, where she wrote her dissertation on the politics of different national interpretations of the law of the sea. Like Michael, uh, she was also previously at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Rachel, welcome at last to Synago. I've been meaning to have you on for a while. I'm excited for this conversation. Thanks, Kaiser. Okay, great. Um, I'm dive right in here. Jessica, let me start with you. I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with the Quincy Institute. Many are probably fans of the writings of your president, Andrew Basevich. I know I am. Uh, but but in, in case there are some who don't know about QI, let's talk about who you are and the general worldview that undergirds the work that you guys do. Absolutely. Well, Kaiser, thanks again for having us. I joined the Quincy Institute a month before it formally launched. And so I've been part of the team for over a year now, and it has been such a delight to uh, work with Dr. Swain and Dr. Odell as we build our East Asia program. Uh, but as you noted, the Quincy Institute, because it's so new, most folks uh, don't know who we are. And so this is a great opportunity to uh, share a little bit about why we were founded and what we seek to do. 
So the Quincy Institute, you know, we promote ideas that move U.S. foreign policy away from endless war and militarism. And we focus more on how to craft a foreign policy based on diplomacy and uh, global engagement. Our vision is to build a world where peace is the norm and war is the exception. And, you know, as a millennial who grew up, you know, after 9-11, you know, I personally feel like this has been a tremendous mission for me personally, because I see that our country has been focused more and more, particularly after 9-11, on foreign interventions, foreign wars. And it's been very frustrating, you know, having been, you know, in Washington for 12 years now to see the how little debate we have about the nearly trillion Mm. dollars we spend on our defense, where that money's going and the impact it has, you know, on people's lives here at home. And so I can't think of a more opportune time for the Quincy Institute to exist and to be out there to push and force a debate uh, on, you know, militarism and its impact on American democracy and society. Amen. I mean, and that sounds like such a reasonable idea. And and yet, uh, you guys get some pushback. Uh, Your institute's original funding, after all, came from both Charles Koch, uh, well, the Koch Foundation, and and from the Open Society Initiative, led by George Soros. Uh, Some people have joked that apparently you're you're funded by, you know, Koch and Soros because you want everyone to hate you. That they, they, they might strike most people as rather odd bedfellows. I mean, the oft-invoked boogeymen of both left and right. Uh, what, Jessica, is, is the common ground between them? That's a great point. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, having been a Democrat all my life, it was also an interesting thing for me to embrace in terms of, you know, working for an institute that is funded by both uh, very conservative as well as liberal funders. But I think to your question, Kaiser, I mean, there are certain things that, you know, any taxpayer should sort of agree. It doesn't matter what your political leanings are, right? I mean, why does the U.S. military budget, why is it so big? Uh, and why, yeah. why is it larger than the next seven countries combined, right? Like, why did we spend $6 trillion in Afghanistan and Iraq after 9-11? What has that gotten us? Is it really making us safe, this endless uh, war and open-ended conflicts? And so I think these are the questions that bind both political spectrum. And I hope that particularly as we see Gen Zers, you know, folks, um, you know, roughly 10 years younger than me in their 20s who are speaking up, you know, they're tired of of endless wars uh, in the Middle East and they don't want U.S. to be caught in a, you know, in a forced conflict in Asia either. Uh, That some of these younger folks, as well as veterans and others that we work with, will help us make that case that is uh, truly uh, transpartisan. Rachel, several years ago, I read Barry Posen's book, Restraint, uh, and that's come back to me quite often as I read materials that are put out by Quincy. Are, are his ideas a pretty good sort of encapsulation of Quincy's core principles? Yeah, so, you know, as you know, I just came from MIT where I had the good fortune to, to study with Barry. And right, I, right. I think that Restraint really does lay out a lot of the sort of key logics that motivate a lot of folks at Quincy. That said, you know, there's a there's a broader ecosystem there of folks who've been challenging U.S. foreign policy for a long time. You know, a lot of a lot of people who oppose the Iraq war, who have also come together for open letters for a more constructive approach to Iran in favor of the JCPOA. And Barry is one of those scholars and 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 practitioners. There's but there's a much larger group that have that have you know they've been around the margins of the policy debates, and sometimes they've been you know closer to the center of them, especially. After the end of the Cold War, there was a brief period in the 90s where there was more debate over what U.S. grand strategy should be. But, you know, in the, in the intervening period, 
you know, there was 9-11 and then there was much more groupthink in, in U.S. foreign policy, but there still were these dissenters. And so anyway, I think that what the Quincy Institute sought to do is to bring together some of those scholars and practitioners who were critical of the way that we'd approached foreign policy together with people who are in more the political sphere on both the left and the right who wanted to see a new U.S. foreign policy, a new U.S. role in the world, and to really bring all of them together. So anyway, I think a lot of Barry's ideas are definitely, I mean, we've talked, we, we talk often about them. They're, they're part of our focus, but you know, there's also a range of views within the broader restraint camp. Yeah. Okay. Last question about uh, about Quincy. I plan, you know, very soon. I hope to talk to Stephen Wertheim about his book Tomorrow the World, which goes into this a lot more, um, me more than I want to hear. But tell me succinctly, Rachel, why you guys reject the label isolationism that many would try to affix to Quincy Institute. So as Jess mentioned, our mission is really to, in fact, revitalize U.S. diplomatic engagement around the world, because the way that we've used military as the first, the tool of first resort for so long has actually caused our diplomatic and economic engagement around the world, including in East Asia, to atrophy. So we we see the, the basic equation quite differently. So we're in no way advocating for isolationism, but in fact, for a new type of internationalism. Right. Michael, there is an issue that you touch on early into the report uh, that you've just published, and it's one that doesn't get really talked about enough, uh, and that is the increase in defense spending um, that a confrontational approach toward China and a a more forward security posture in East Asia would entail. Uh, Specifically, I I don't think enough thought has been given to the consequences of a a major increase in military spending, what what that consequence, those consequences would be, you know, what it would crowd out, what the environmental impact would be. Michael, could you talk about the costs of another arms race? Well, yeah, you've touched on several of these, Kaiser. I mean, I think the costs of another arms race are obviously financial for the United States at a time when the United States needs to really start thinking hard about its domestic needs and about much of the areas where with more funding and more support, the United States could become a more equal, more fair, a more just society, and would be more focused on issues other than military balancing with real and imagined enemies. The idea of defense spending really is driven by a notion of U.S. global primacy and the idea that only a hegemonic U.S. can ensure global stability and prosperity. And it's pushes military buildups for supposed deterrence without really thinking about how we might actually engage with other countries, particularly the Chinese, to reach understandings on volatile issues that really do require mutual restraint. So, you know, arms racing just takes money away from other areas. It diverts our attention in ways that are much more zero sum in dealing with potential adversaries. And it just continues this this military industrial complex and influence within American politics that is designed towards preserving and maintaining high levels of defense spending for political reasons. And I think we've got to get beyond that kind of thinking and looking at what are are our defense needs in realistic terms, uh, what sort of defense spending is really necessary. I think a certain level of defense spending obviously is very necessary for the United States. And the U.S. must maintain its its position as a major technological actor in the military area for a whole host of reasons. But the idea that we, what we need to do is avoid getting into relationships where there is no end 
to, to arms racing, where it's, you know, what is the solution to the problem? And the answer is not more deterrence. Often the answer is a more sophisticated strategy that combines deterrence with reassurance and a lot of diplomatic efforts that can then dampen the necessity for endless arms racing. And I think that's what Quincy stands for. Jessica, just now Michael flicked at, at the impact of, of arms racing, of, of this sort of new Cold War mentality on domestic politics. And that's something that you've actually looked at quite a bit when it comes to uh, racial ethnic relations in the United States as well. Uh, I mean, we've seen this just since March, once President Trump started referring to, <laughs> former President Trump started referring to, I love saying that, I'm going to say that again, once... <laughs> Once former President Trump started talking about, you know, the China virus, the Wuhan flu, the, the Kung flu or whatever, do you think that people appreciate the full impact that that has had, especially on Asian Americans? Yeah, that's a great question, Kaiser. Thank you for that. Before I launch into that, I just want to build upon what Michael said earlier. I do think that it's important to also recognize that, you know, as part of the COVID omnibus bill, Congress passed a bill that included 96 new F-35s, uh, funding for building 96 new F-35s. And it would cost $9.6 billion, uh, which is enough to pay for grocery bills of America's poorest households for one whole month. Uh, and oh so God. to your question and to Michael's point, you know, there's definitely trade-offs uh, as we fuel our addiction to militarism and to the military industrial complex. So I just wanted to underscore that point. Uh, but to, to mm-hmm. the question about, yeah, absolutely, Kaiser. I mean, you and I talked about this in a uh, webinar Quincy Institute and Jewish Currents hosted last spring uh, in which you and I and others, you know, talked uh, quite a bit about the racism and the anti-China rhetoric that was emanating very strongly from the White House. Um, and, you know, it was very scary, to be honest with you, uh, to see someone so high up in the U.S. government openly embrace terms that could easily fuel racism toward an ethnic community uh, here in the United States. And we know from studying Asian American history uh, through Japanese American internment and others that this is not a joke. You know, these things can result in some horrific horrific human rights violations. And so to me, I was very stunned and quite uh, concerned. So I I think, you know, just to be brief, you're absolutely right. There's a civil liberties component to all this, as some in Washington rushed to a a Cold War-like conflict with China, and it's uh, something we need to uh, debate more fully. So let's get into the paper itself. Uh, One of the questions that's been on the minds of a lot of people that I've talked to, I've talked to, for example, Evan Feigenbaum, uh, about the, the relationship between an Asia policy or an East Asia policy, as the case may be, on the one hand, and a China policy on the other. Evan, for example, quoted Richard Armitage, who was his former boss, on what uh, that relation should be. And he definitely says that you've got to get the one right in order to get the other. Should one be subordinate to the other in your way of thinking? Do you think that we have to get Asia strategy right before we can get China strategy right? Or is it just the opposite? Or do you think that we can approach these two things together in parallel? Well, I would say that we have to get both of them right, and I wouldn't necessarily say one comes before the other. I think they have to complement each other, obviously. They have to reinforce each other. Um, So to begin with, yes, you do need a larger strategic assessment about what is the role of the United States in Asia, what are its advantages, what are its leverages, what are its leverage, what are its deficiencies or shortcomings and develop that in ways that are realistic in in formulating a strategy for advancing U.S. and 
friendly and allied interests in the region. For, mm. for Quincy, I think in our approach in the report is that both on Asia policy and on China policy, we follow certain general principles. One is to have balance in the region, not dominance. Neither mm-hmm. the U.S. nor China is going to dominate Asia in the future. To have inclusivity to the most greatest extent possible and with attention to the wishes of the region and their viewpoints. And that includes China, but first and foremost, I think it includes U.S. allies. Far greater attention to common threats posed by climate change, pandemics, global economic instability, and domestic terrorism in the form of, for example, in the U.S., populist nationalism. (laughs) So it's not a strategy centered on strategic competition with China. Um, No Asian nation wants the kind of myopic, zero-sum approach to China that's now dominant in many policy circles in the United States. They want a more sophisticated policy that has a more sophisticated sense of balance between both deterrence and reassurance and is geared to reflect and strengthen the interests and the positions of American citizens uh, and not just simply serve the interests of one elite or another elite within the U.S. leadership. So I think the two of them, I mean, those principles really relate to both China policy and Asia policy. If we base our Asia policy first and foremost on countering China, uh, as the Trump administration has done, and you've seen this in the declassification of the Asia uh, strategy. The Indo-Pacific, we, yeah. The yeah, Indo-Pacific exactly. Strategy. The Indo-Pacific strategy that just came out. That document was all about China, and it was right. all about China in a very zero-sum way. It made it very clear that the free and open Indo-Pacific concept was not an inclusive concept for the entire region. It certainly did not include China, despite the fact that some U.S. officials have said that it does. It was very clear that it doesn't from that document and that the way of dealing with China is basically you assume the worst and you balance or contain China and you get the rest of the region to follow you in doing that. And that, I think, is a recipe for disaster in Asia. It's not going to work. Other countries won't support it. So we've got to get this right and understand exactly how China threatens us and how it doesn't threaten us and cannot threaten us and what China's presence and influence means for America's own objectives and interests. How can we meaningfully cooperate with the Chinese in areas where we all have a a very strong interest in cooperating and not just stress this very, very zero-sum kind of worst-case approach? Right. So let's talk about what China wants, what its ambitions actually are. Your paper, you know, as is appropriate, offers a good deal of sort of the patient's medical history, you know, uh, the history of of, uh, American policy in in the region. And one of the things that you look at is, of course, the the changes that have taken place across the region. Not surprisingly, the most consequential of these changes has been the continuing economic rise and growing military capabilities of China, uh, as well as China's increasingly repressive domestic policies. I think few in the world of U.S. foreign policy would dispute the importance of these things. But you guys also push back on claims that we often hear about what Michael was talking about, about China's ambitions of its revisionist or its, you know, revanchist or hegemonic intent. I think we've all encountered this tendency, and you addressed this directly, so I wanted to ask you about it, uh, this tendency to, to draw a sort of straight line to extrapolate from China's repressive domestic policies, which is something, you know, it's not in dispute, uh, to a conviction that China wants to do to the same thing to the rest of the world. This is something I talked about with Ryan Haas on the show that I recently published with him. 
how does your paper deal with this? How do you, in the work that you do, you guys do day to day, try to persuade people that this straight line extrapolation is flawed? I think that's a key point, Kaiser. And in fact, in addition to the the problems with this straight line connection between China's domestic authoritarianism and its supposed, you know, global and hegemonic ambitions abroad, I'd also add that there's a tendency to sort of say that China's reached the end of history. You know, that you see this in this narrative that U.S. engagement has failed and now China is, you know, authoritarian and it's the adversary. And I, I, obviously China is a far more complex, dynamic, pluralistic society than that. And it's definitely become much more authoritarian in recent years, but, you know, it's, it's history is still unwritten, right? And, and so I think that we're, we're trying, in this report, we really try to excavate the ways in which China has changed and the ways it, it remains highly complex and its future is unwritten. And on the foreign policy piece in particular, we we try to emphasize certain things like, what is what does China want? What are its sort of views of the world? And what is China trying to accomplish when it comes to, is it really right. trying to kick the United States out of the region or, or promote its model, its so-called model of development around the world or undermine global democracies? And basically our argument is that most of these common canards in you know US foreign policy in, in the Washington discussion just really aren't nuanced enough to capture what's going on in China, which certainly it's authoritarianism in some ways diffuses around the world because they're developing technologies that you know other countries that are wanting to exercise more control over their populations are importing and in in some global institutions they're pushing back on certain uh, values that the United States embraces regarding political religious indigenous rights and so these are things that China is clearly in some ways exerting what we might say are our negative impacts on the world but in other areas, you know, they've been quite pro-social, as, as you know, IR theorists might say. They've tried to engage in ways that promote a, a global trading system and, mm-hmm. and support mm-hmm. international development. And they're not nearly so revisionist, I think, as the common narrative implies. Yeah, yeah. If I had to sum up in a, in a simple sentence, I'd say that Beijing wants to emerge as a major 21st century power in all relevant spheres with enough power and leverage in the international arena to protect its most basic interests, territorial integrity, increased living standards for its population, strengthen legitimacy for the Chinese Communist Party within China, and a strong voice in all international fora. Now, does this mean China wants global dominance? I think we mirror image when we blithely assume that this means that China does want that objective. We achieved global dominance in the United States through a combination of very specific factors coming out of World War II. China is highly unlikely to duplicate our experience unless we and they push worst casing to such a high level that there is no other choice but to seek dominance to prevent being extinguished by the other side. Right. But we need to avoid that. But I don't think Chinese leaders think they can dominate the world. There are too many countries major countries who won't accept their dominance, and they have significant amounts of their own leverage. And China has too few areas of real leverage to export their model and get it accepted, nor to force others to accept their model. You guys 
have a, an awful lot of, of, of recommendations, very broad in scope, very ambitious. And it's likely to draw criticism for being too ambitious. So with that in mind, let me start with the question of prioritization or, or maybe triage is, is the right word here. What are the most urgent and pressing issues in East Asia that the Biden team really needs to address right away, first hundred days? Well, I could, if I could answer, I, I would say that first thing it needs to do is to stop the zero-sum, worst-case demonization of China mm-hmm. and adopt a much broader, more sophisticated notion of the threats and opportunities that face the global system. Part of our whole logic in this paper is to argue for a broader understanding of what is security for the United States in the world and in Asia. And it goes far beyond counterbalancing China. It is important to counterbalance China in some ways, but it's also important to understand that other things need to be need to be countered and dealt with, and we need to work with the Chinese to do that. So I think we need to reestablish coordination with China on pandemic management. That's probably first and foremost. And the Biden administration has come out very strong on taking a very different approach to COVID than the Trump administration, which was basically no approach at all. <laughs> Um, I think it will. They should redeploy their their CDC and other health experts to China to the offices that Trump shut down, and should work with China to secure and bolster medical supply lines, increase vaccine production and distribution. Secondly, I think that that China needs to work uh, with the United States. The U.S. needs to approach China on climate cooperation. Absolutely. Um, John Kerry, who's who's now the, the climate envoy, needs to go to Beijing. And to identify how the U.S. and China, who are the world's two largest carbon emitters, can mobilize the world to take bold action, to go beyond the Paris Agreement, expand joint investments in low-cost carb decarbonization technologies that can help the developing world to develop a greener infrastructure. Hmm. And then thirdly, I would say they need to really get serious with the Chinese about crisis avoidance and crisis management. They need to start thinking about how can we engage the Chinese in meaningful ways that will allow us to avert an open-ended arms race and put a cap on the tensions that are brewing between the United States and China, particularly in Asia, over the South China Sea, over Taiwan, and potentially on the Korean Peninsula. So there's already in the Office of Secretary of Defense a military-to-military crisis communications effort with the Chinese military. But I think we need to go beyond that and build on that. It has to be expanded beyond mill-mill to take in civilian dialogues as well to, to really start off in a direction that says, we agree on the need to avoid getting into crises. We need to establish clear mechanisms that have applicability, not just to the military, but to civilian leadership as well. Let's focus first on, on some of these areas of, of cooperation that we can we can go through, the sort of low-hanging fruit. Um, but one of the broad baskets of recommendations that you guys make, uh, I'll, I'll direct this one to Jessica, uh, is to reprioritize diplomatic engagement and economic integration. And you, you guys call for what you term inclusive regional diplomacy and cooperative security. And, and Michael flicked at that just now. It's not just about countering China. You, one of the things that you suggest is that you should uh, encourage, we should encourage a rapprochement between China and the other states of the region, including our allies like like Japan and South Korea. That makes perfectly good sense to me, but I think that's going to trigger a lot of people who frame competition with China as essentially zero-sum. I mean, aren't we supposed to be restoring those alliances for the very purposes of constraining or containing China? Why should we encourage closer ties between our allies and the PRC? 
Yeah. So Kaiser, thanks for, for that question. I mean, I, I think the, the challenge of the Biden administration is going to be working with allies, being more engaged in Asia, not through seeking dominance, but, you know, as you just said in your question, uh, seeking more of a cooperative uh, regional framework. And I think that's essential. I think part of what needs to happen to your previous question about priorities, too, is going to be a, a real recognition and reckoning that our allies are not necessarily uh, close on certain issues. For example, South Korea and Japan are far apart uh, on North Korea, right? That is going to be a difficult one uh, to, to, cha- uh, to tackle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, then take, you know, for example, China and South Korea, they're very much aligned in more of a diplomacy-centered uh, political resolution to the U.S.-North Korea issue. And so it, it's not binary. Like, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. Right, and U.S., exactly. you know, is the leader of the good. I mean, the issues in, in the region are thorny and complex, and it's going to require a lot of maneuvering and creativity. And that's what diplomats are supposed to do. They're supposed to find the common ground. They're supposed to talk to adversaries and de-escalate tension. And so I think that's the work. But, you know, just to add, I know we're going to talk more about Korea uh, in a second. But, you know, I, I think on North Korea issue in particular, you know, this is going to be something that, uh, really does require a regional kind of buy-in. Uh, we know right, right. Uh, that Americans, especially after the Paris Agreement and JCPOA uh, experience, there's a lot of concerns in the region about whether Americans can be trusted, right, by way of a multilateral right. agreement. And so North Korea is no exception. I mean, you know, we already are isolating ourselves by, you know, putting this impossible standard of, well, denuclearization or bust. So we're already isolated in that sense that, you know, we're not taking the North Korea issue, I think, very seriously. But assuming that the mm-hmm. Biden administration will go ahead and take it more seriously, I think the, the part of the work of diplomacy is going to be, you know, considering uh, the input of all the regional actors, including countries like China and Russia, that, you know, we may have great misgivings about, but we have to work with them anyway. What are the existing institutions that we can build on uh, to create these these inclusive, non-political, more multilateral institutions that you guys are talking about? Things that will address these issues of common concern, like global warming, like pandemics, like weapons of mass destruction, uh, like nuclear proliferation, like cybercrime or illegal trafficking in drugs or in wildlife. Um, you know, you could go on. Are there existing institutions that can be built on, things that will are, are sort of capacious enough for both the United States and China and other regional actors, our allies there, ASEAN countries, Russia? So in the report, we talk about three general ways in which we can really revitalize uh, and bolster multilateral diplomacy in the region. And I think the first one is the ASEAN-centric institutions. So there are, you know, ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, has a really dense web of fora and institutions that help facilitate dialogue and cooperation in the region. And sometimes it's popular to sort of poo-poo ASEAN as just being, you know, a talk shop. But I think that they really do facilitate, well, first of all, talk. That is important. You need countries talking, uh, you know, about key issues. In addition, they also facilitate, you know, cooperation, training, um, various initiatives that they have engaged in over the years on uh, usually pretty you know, low-hanging fruit when it comes to non-traditional security issues, uh, things like piracy and uh, some pandemic cooperation. But really, there's, you know, there's a lot of room for improvement. And I think that if the United States really committed and, and sent strong signals that it was committed to working in an inclusive way with ASEAN and China and other nations in the region, I think that would help to um, strengthen those ASEAN institutions, things like the East Asia Summit and the ASEAN Regional Forum. And now the second 
major plank of, of regional engagement that we could really, where we could do a lot more work is in transforming the nature of our security alliances with countries like Japan, Korea, Australia, Philippines, where we could, you know, seek to move those away from being exclusively focused on military deterrence missions and to expand them to be to have more robust dialogues about a broad range of other issues such as pandemics and climate change and maritime security, non-proliferation, and to bring other countries into that, um, whether that be on a sort of minilateral basis or trilateral basis. But I think that we can re-envision the way that we we you know, leverage those alliances. And then I think the third plank that we that really needs to be emphasized is that we by no means advocate for a G2 type configuration between the US right. and China. But I do think it's important that the United States and China also send some strong signals that they're willing to work together to help promote, you know, shared interests in the for in the region. And I think that f- countries in the region would really welcome this. And it wouldn't just be US-China initiatives, but they could help develop an agenda, a cooperative agenda uh, across issues like climate and pandemics that, that they could bring other countries into um, and you know build on existing regional institutions to do that. But in some cases, we may need better mechanisms um, to promote the kind of cooperation that's needed. So I think that there's there, yes, there are things we can build on, but we also need to be creative in thinking about new venues. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, I mean the, the the deeper problem, of course, is that just for so long our our Asia policy, such as it is, has been so security forward, and and diplomacy has just taken such a backseat to it. Uh, and this is a, a major point in your paper. You know, I mean, it's so deeply entrenched right now, and just within our strategic thinking class, uh, or you know, you look at any notional average you know think tanker or DC lawmaker. I mean. He, he, they hear Asia's strategy and their minds go immediately to, you know, Taiwan Straits, South China Sea, the North Korean nuclear capabilities. Uh, it's, it's hard to get them to think in terms of multilateralism or, 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 or diplomacy anymore. Uh, it's really frustrating. Anyway. Well, I think the United States really is in a situation today in the world where, I mean, it's become pretty obvious that it, it cannot act largely alone or in a way that sort of instructs other countries what they need to do uh, in order to a- achieve its objectives. Right. It has to be able to establish a strong way for cooperating with other countries in which you really do listen to them and you don't just engage in this kind of echo chamber. Oftentimes, U.S. officials will go to Asia and they'll talk to their, uh, their counterparts in Asian capitals and they will often hear what these people think they want to hear. And they will tell them things that that reinforce American views that, well, you know, these Asian countries, they just want us to stay there and really push against the Chinese. But if you look more broadly uh, at a lot of these societies, including Japan, yes, they want the United States there to be uh, to be a counterbalance to China in a variety of ways. But no, they do not want this to be done in ways that simply set themselves up for getting dragged into a confrontation between the U.S. and China. And so they're interested in initiatives that will not pull them in that direction. And the Trump administration has certainly not been doing that at all. Mm. So uh, U.S. officials, I think, have to talk beyond their counterparts in the defense systems and, and just within the foreign ministries of each country and try to interact with a broader base of people in the societies and politics in these, in these different countries to get a sense about where where they think uh, U.S. should be in Asia. There has to be a lot more listening going on in U.S. policy in Asia than, than the talking that we've heard for the last four years. 
So one of the, the ways forward is, of course, through deeper economic integration, and that's an important part of your set of, of recommendations. But how feasible, really, would it be for the United States to, as you recommend, rejoin or to join CPTPP? I mean, we never actually joined TPP in its earlier incarnation. I mean, I imagine there's going to be some people who will support that in, in D.C. It'll be easy to rejoin Paris. Uh, some people will support us rejoining the World Health Organization, maybe... Uh, but but CPTPP, I mean that's that's going to be a tough sell. I mean it's probably the one that I would give the longest odds on. I mean, not to mention RCEP. I mean that's even worse odds possibly. Uh, is that even politically feasible right now to be thinking about calling for the United States to join CPTPP? So I don't think this is a short term. This is not a first one hundred days initiative no. that we're going to see out of the Biden administration or that we even should see. But, you know, I think a lot will depend upon the domestic political and economic scene over the next year or two and what the Biden administration is able to accomplish. And, you know, what we really argue in this report is that a economic engagement strategy in the region that's, that that the United States really does need, including, you know, joining TPP, CPTPP, ex- exploring joining RCEP, is really dependent upon a new approach to domestic economic policy and a better linkage of the two. And, you know, people, of course, this has been a longstanding argument that when you pass a trade agreement, the, you need to have trade adjustment assistance. And but really, it's been it's been kind of like putting a Band-Aid on someone whose leg has been amputated, you know, the, right. the, the, the amount of trade adjustment assistance that has been done. And it, we really need to kind of revolutionize that perspective. It, it, it's not just about providing some retraining here and there. It's about really making sure that the distribution of the gains from trade is much fairer and juster than it's been up to this point. And that needs to entail you know, tying trade agreements, when we join a trade agreement, it's not just about improving standards in the agreement, which oftentimes has been the focus. It's high standard trade agreements with trade adjustment assistance. Yes, we need high standard trade agreements. And I think, you know, folks like Catherine Tai, the new nominee for um, U.S. Trade Representative, you know, they'll do a good job at at negotiating high standards for trade agreements. But it has to be coupled explicitly, you know, in legislation with investments at home. Because, you know, a lot of people who study trade agreements have, they have found that, it does increase, you know, trade in developed advanced industrialized countries does increase economic inequalities. You've got to make sure if you want to make these trade agreements sustainable, you've got to make sure that you're fairly distributing those gains in terms of investments in education and in healthcare and in infrastructure so that it's actually benefiting the American people more generally and not just the wealthiest in our country. Right. So, you know, you know, I think that the Biden administration, that is one of their priorities. I don't think that they have quite a, a national, stri- the kind of national trade strategy that we really need. But I think if they're able to really, you know, revitalize the economy in those ways, that might help to rebuild um, some of the political support for trade, which, which, you know, the Chicago Council polling last year found that Americans still support international trade. I mean, a lot of people suffered from those tariffs that you know, came with the Trump trade war with China. And so they realized the benefits of trade. They just want to make sure that those benefits are distributed fairly. A lot of people suffered from the tariffs, as you say. And part of the recommendations that you make are that we immediately drop all of the tariffs that were imposed since the trade war began in earnest during 2018. But I can already hear the skeptics saying, what leverage does that then leave us if we abandon the tariffs? How do we cajole China to come to the table? How do we convince them how do we convince the Chinese to undertake the fundamental structural reforms to the economy that undergird so many of the problems that we have 
I mean, your report suggests that we can appeal to their own enlightened self-interest, that we can ultimately convince them that undertaking these reforms is ultimately in the interest of the Chinese economy. But uh, frankly, that sounds a bit like pie in the sky. Yeah, I mean, one of the points of our, of our report is that we need to be a little more realistic in the way that we approach these trade negotiations. I think the idea that we can go in there and fundamentally restructure the, the Chinese economy by, by slapping on some tariffs was one of the reasons why the Trump trade strategy failed right. and why they were never able to negotiate a phase two and why the phase one agreement was flawed. And so I think that we, we have to kind of moderate some of our expectations. I think part of the issue is that you know, I do resist a little bit this idea that we have to work from the framework of of the tariff of the trade war as if that is the optimal baseline that we 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 want. I mean, this is this is continuing to harm American farmers and American you know consumers and American workers who can't export their products as much as 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 they could before because of the retaliatory tariffs. So, you know, I think we need to get to a place where we lift these, even if we're not going to achieve this pie in the sky notion of you know, fundamentally restructuring the Chinese economy. But of course, we can't, you know, I think that just the nature of politics is such and the nature of, you know, some of Chinese economic practices that aren't fair or that need to change is such that we, we need concessions in exchange, right? And I think that there are ways that we can make that kind of a deal, uh, concessions on intellectual property protections and on certain kinds of reforms to state-owned, uh, st- to state subsidization of the economy. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's keep in mind what, what started this whole uh, trade war between uh, the Trump administration and China. It was basically based on a flawed understanding of what trade is about. It was based on Trump's notion that the United States was losing because it had a bilateral trade deficit with China, that that was a major, major problem that had to be rectified, and that Chinese um, um, Chinese misbehavior in a variety of areas was what created that trade deficit on the part of the United States. Right. Uh, there was some of that that contributed to it, but it essentially wasn't because of that. And trying to equalize trade balances on a bilateral basis, any economist will tell you, other than maybe Peter Navarro. <laughs> if is, he qualifies, yeah. It, right, if he qualifies, is 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 just a spurious and, and futile effort. You're not going to get it. Of course, um, of course. You, you have to look at this on a, on a global basis. And so you have to rethink how, how are we going about trying to correct some of the economic abuses and misbehavior of all parties? Um, and it's not unique to the Chinese in some ways. We have to also look and see exactly what has been the negative impact of China and economic relations with China on the United States. To listen to the Trump administration, you'd think that our entire economy has been gutted by the Chinese which is just an absolutely absurd argument. Right. I mean, China's contributed to a third of global growth since 2008, according to the World Bank. And it's, it's had a very positive effect in, in, in many areas, including in the United States. But it has also had the effect of creating unemployment, as Rachel said earlier, because of agreements of some sort. And it's also had a bad effect because of the Chinese acting in ways uh, on technology front in particular, that have been really not fair and have not been on an even playing field, and in terms of their cyber, their cyber theft of technology, which has been extensive. Yeah, and, and well, let's I, talk about know, technology. I think that's that's an important thing. I mean, because that was another spur, as you as you've indicated, to the trade war itself. Uh, your recommendations on technology sound pretty familiar to me. I wasn't surprised to see 
uh, certain names that are very dear to me in the footnotes to those sections. Um, you guys argue, though, against the kind of decoupling that the Trump administration has championed, and you don't argue either for uh, dropping all export restrictions. So you, you have sort of what you call kind of limited disentanglement. What does that look like? Uh, and how does it, you know, as you guys argue, actually decrease the sense of vulnerability that each side feels? You know, if they we remain uh, coupled but have a kind of limited disentanglement? Well, I don't think we have in the paper, honestly, a, a clear definition breaking down this technology, that technology needs to be no, decoupled, no. this one doesn't. You know, a lot of this, Kaiser, revolves around how do you define dual-use technologies? What is critical for national security? What kind of technology do you need to really control and prevent other countries from obtaining, particularly countries that you think might not be terribly friendly towards you. Um, and that's a, that's, a, that's a challenging issue. It's not as clear cut as I think many Americans would like to think. But what we've done thus far has been to err on the side of calling more things as being part of the national security and, and dual use that we absolutely cannot allow to have uh, any kind of connection with the Chinese rather than looking seriously at what are the technologies that are really important and what are not? I mean, we say in the report, we do believe that this area needs to have, as I can't remember who said it, Hank Paulson or somebody, high high walls in a narrow area. Right. The, 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 the phrase is small yard, high fence. And yeah, right. I mean, Paulson right. said it, but yeah, I think uh, Gates was one of the, Robert Gates was the first person to use that. Right. Uh, so it's a question of how do you define that? I mean, it's, it, it, sure, exactly. it sounds good. But you've got to really be able to define it in a, in, a, in a sophisticated way that by people who really know what they're talking about, who really know about the technology, who understand how technology changes and what's important in developing technology. I mean, this idea of decoupling our technology innovation from the Chinese, just cut it off because technology is a big threat, is just going to lead us to be isolated. The Chinese will work with other countries in areas of technology, and it will, but it could very well end up weakening everybody. So it's not really going to strengthen us and weaken the Chinese in meaningful ways. It's just going to limit everybody. I think that one one problem with a lot of, in the technology sphere is that a lot of the problems that people have identified from a security perspective that might be presented by Chinese companies or technologies really aren't problems to do with China per se. They're problems to do with our infrastructure, with our regulations that just have not kept up with the technology revolution. So, you know, I, I, I totally endorse the perspective of, of Sam Sachs, which which you tends to argue that what we really need is better standards uh, that protect privacy for apps or that, you know, better security in our infrastructure. Irrespective will, of national origin. Ir irrespective, right. exactly. That will right, apply right. across the board, including to American companies, right? Where right. <laughs> there's there's real security concerns there. And, and also the, even thinking about it in these national origin terms just betrays a lack of understanding of the nature of the technology sector and of the way that companies have interlinkages with each other and the way that, you know, a, a, if, if the Chinese government really wanted to gain access to certain data, they could just hack an American company if they don't have high security standards, right? So I think that that's really where the bulk of our efforts should be focused. Yeah. I mean, it would, it would have been impossible to spell out exactly what technologies and, and to, to come up with an oper operational definition of what dual-use technologies really are. So, I mean, nobody's going to fault you, I think, for, for not you know, achieving that level of specificity. Uh, but let's talk about a, another part of the paper now, because there are so many other things that I want to do um, here. 
the section where you kind of spell out your ideas about American force posture in the region. Uh, this part, I think it would surprise people who have preconceived notions of what the Quincy Institute is all about. Um, what you guys call for is nothing like withdrawal from within the first island chain, nothing like ceding a sphere of influence to China. And while you do reject the idea that the U.S. military should aim for regional dominance or hegemony, uh, what you do recommend would result in the substantial reduction of U.S. forces in the region. So what you do prescribe is a focus on anti-access area denial, which interestingly is exactly what China's focus has been in terms of its strategic posture there. Uh, could you explain for our listeners who aren't really steeped in, in military matters what anti-access area denial is and uh, outline what it is that you recommend the U.S. do? So for a long time, the United States military posture in the Asia Pacific has been based upon sort of maintaining uncontested uh, military primacy, where that this has largely consisted of a heavy forward presence with ground troops, especially in Japan and South Korea, of of a lot of forward deployed tactical aircraft, especially in, in bases in Japan, and frequent operations by by naval forces, especially large aircraft carrier battle groups and destroyers that operate, you know, within the first island chain, which is kind of the, the islands that go from Japan down through, you know, Taiwan, the Philippines to the Strait of Malacca, and, you know, are doing regular surveillance and reconnaissance operations, you know, thousands each year along the Chinese coast. And this has kind of been the way that we've done business for a long time. But as the Chinese military has really grown in capability, we're increasingly bumping up against each other. And the United States is, the U.S. military's sort of way of war is to, is to maintain preeminence and to do that through offensive strategies and heavy, heavy forward deployments. But that's really not a viable strategy. It's, mm. it's, it's not likely to re- remain viable or even you know successful as China's military grows. But it's also highly destabilizing. We really risk the triggering a crisis through uh, either inadvertent uh, incidents with China or through the kind of offensive strategies that the military has explored to try to reestablish dominance in the region. So mm-hmm. anyway, the, the idea of anti-access area denial is, yeah, these are, these are strategies that weaker states have long employed. They use asymmetric capabilities, especially missiles, ballistic missiles, and but also things like you know, mines or, or anti-ship cruise missiles that are really more um, kind of not, not oriented towards facilitating expansion or dominance, but they're, they're intended to deny other countries' militaries from gaining access to a certain area or from invading your own country, right? So we basically say, let's flip that on its, you know, let's invert that and apply it to China because we don't see China as being, you know, hell-bent on territorial expansion throughout the region, except for potentially vis-a-vis Taiwan. And we can talk more about that, but we, you know, we also acknowledge that we have alliance commitments in the region and we don't want China to eventually go on some sort of, you know, territorial expansion spree and that, that, that would harm, that would endanger the United States. And so that plus the fact that China can use its military force if it, if it really sort of has an overwhelming balance of force to, con- to coerce countries short of the actual, you know, use of force, it can right. use that military power. So, so for both those reasons, we say, okay, let's maintain a presence, but let's have it be more defensive in orientation so that we deny China the ability to, you know, <clears throat> harm our allies or other countries in the region. Well, if I could just add a one, one point, I mean, the, the emphasis here is on an anti-access area denial is that you have a force structure that can deny the other side from being able to 
to persevere and win through its deployment of air and naval assets offshore. Right. So you, you're focused on interdicting those air and naval assets, preventing air control or sea control without having to early on go after command and control facilities and other territorial land-based um, facilities with, deep within China. Uh, so the idea is that you're focused much more on preventing region area control and sea control um, and, and doing so without you yourself having control. So the two sides are able to deny each other the ability to control these highly contested areas in the event of a conflict without resorting to highly escalatory attacks deep into each other's territory. Yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, just now, Rachel had talked a little bit about uh, some of our existing forward deployments. Uh, Jessica, the, your recommendations push back against the idea that U.S. forces in South Korea, I don't know what they number, but we have numerous uh, forces in South Korea, that those could be brought to bear or were ever intended to be brought to bear in balancing China. This wasn't the role that U.S. troops in, in, in Korea uh, or this alliance with Seoul was ever meant for. Uh, it was always about North Korea, after all, right? What about forces in Japan? Uh, I'm wondering if that's the same for Japan, whether they have a sort of counter-China role or ever in, were intended to. Uh, can you unpack that a bit for us? Sure. Um, you know, I, you're absolutely right. The U.S.-South Korea alliance, you know, was forged primarily to counter uh, against potential North Korean aggression as seen during the Korean War. And South Korea, you know, despite its uh, economic prowess and, and considerable uh, spending toward its defense, it is geographically, I think, not well positioned to maintain more of a denial uh, force posture than, say, Japan and Australia that are much farther away uh, from China. And so, you know, I do think South Korea is an unusual situation. You're right in that we have troops about, you know, 28,500, in fact, of American troops in South Korea. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that we warn against is um, taking this alliance relationship with South Korea and changing its intent as, you know, perhaps part of a broader strategy to uh, contain China. I mean, that would be a mistake. And right. so I think we need to be really clear about what these alliances are meant for and try to work directly with those countries to address their threats rather than kind of lump it all as part of a, a, a grand strategy that, you know, may actually harm uh, our allies' interests. And you saw that in 2017 with the you know deployment of THAAD uh, missile defense system where South Korea was punished, <laughs> you know, through economic right. coercion by some $7 billion, you know, in terms of Chinese tourism and everything else that, you know, ended quite abruptly uh, because South Korea decided to deploy that uh, missile defense system despite objections from Beijing. So there's a lot of cost to our earlier conversation, you know, about these moves. And I think South Korea experienced firsthand what that looks like in terms of having to choose between U.S. and China. Michael, your report has uh, talked about shifting U.S. advance forces from Japan to Australia, and you suggest that that would enhance security in the region. Uh, given the state of things, though, between Beijing and Canberra right now, uh, and how China responded, what was it, 10 years ago or so, when really the opening move of the, the so-called pivot involved stationing 2,500 U.S. Marines in northern Australia, I, I can't imagine that was would go over so well with Beijing. <laughs> Well, it, it's, it would all depend on what it was embedded in. It would all depend on what the larger strategy would be. If the larger strategy is one where you're trying to construct a mutual denial 
uh, mutual denial, U.S. and China both, um, balance in, in the Western Pacific, uh, and that that would involve withdrawing of some forces, forward forces that were overly exposed and wouldn't be actually that useful because they might be too escalatory, mm-hmm. um, pull them back to Australia as part of that strategy, that overall strategy, then I'm not sure the Chinese would be totally ob- objecting to that simply because they don't have good political relations right now with Canberra. Right. Um, I think it would have to really depend a lot on how you address the larger relationship um, with your position in Asia and with the Chinese. Uh, so all of these things have to be part of a broader strategy about where you want the region to be um, over the next 10 to 20 years and more. Right. Uh, we're, 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 we're moving into a situation in Asia now where we're, in essence, we have an unstable balance between, I mean, a real balance between the U.S. and China militarily. Some people would even argue that within the first island chain, it's no longer a balance. The Chinese have the greater level of capability. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've and, seen that and, argument made. Well, uh, people don't quite understand the implications of this. The implications of this are not, oh, my God, we're all going to die. We have to double down on U.S. predominance. The implications of it are that kind of an unstable balance leads each country to become in some ways more risk acceptant because on the Chinese side, they could they could make the error that they're too overconfident and they have more leverage than they think they have. So they take higher risks on the U.S. side. It makes the U.S. think we're going to disabuse the Chinese and everybody else that we're losing our position. So they overreact. Right. So you, so you've got a real a real danger of miscalculation in in dealing with the relatively few actual sources of real military conflict in the Western Pacific. And those issues are all fundamentally political issues. They're all about dealing with differences over sovereignty claims and differences over interpretations of international law. They're not over China needs to needs breathing room and it has to expand to achieve greater, you know, to take over greater territory than it's claiming. So it, it people have to recognize that this is all part of the effort to try and establish a stable balance with levels of tension reduction across the region. That's the better way to approach the dynamic that we're looking at today. So I want to de- dedicate the rest of most of the rest of the time that we have left here to Taiwan, which is, of course, very much in the news of late. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the South China Sea uh, and uh, your recommendations when it comes to maritime disputes there are built on this belief that the U.S. has gotten Chinese intentions wrong or that we've exaggerated the extent of actual Chinese mischief there. Um, Can you go through what you think we've gotten wrong really succinctly and whether you think we should continue, for example, to conduct phone ops, uh, freedom of navigation operations within Chinese claimed waters, and um, maybe your recommendations on how we should uh, better manage potential crises in those waters? Yeah, I think the core of what we've gotten wrong is the idea that China phones poses a fundamental threat to U.S. interests in the South China Sea. Um, our interests are in open shipping lanes and, you know, the ability to navigate our military vessels through those sea lines communication. And China is not threatening either of those core interests. They have objected, certainly, to various U.S. military operations in the South China Sea. But those tend to be in two general categories. One is U.S. surveillance operations near Chinese naval bases that make them feel really insecure and that we do on a very frequent basis or, you know, along Chinese coasts more generally. And two is our freedom of navigation operations, especially near disputed islands in the South China Sea, like the Paracels or the or the Spratleys. And, you know, I think that we really need to adopt a new approach where instead of 
pursuing these relatively destabilizing military operations, we can instead go to China and essentially strike a deal where we say, look, we we need to be able to maintain military access to the South China Sea, but we don't need to be conducting, you know, two or 3,000 you know, surveillance operations along the Chinese coast every year. And we don't need to be constantly surveilling, you know, right along, right next to the Sanya naval base. So in, in exchange, you know, China is increasingly itself operating its naval bases far from its own coasts and in right. other states' waters. So they have this growing interest in, you know, their own freedom of navigation. And so I think there's increasing receptivity. You know, China has never threatened to exclude military vessels from the South China Sea. And I think there's real room for that kind of, that kind of uh, modus vivendi. And if, if we'll tone down the, the frequency of our surveillance, as well as stop doing so uh, front ops near disputed features where we don't even take a position in theory on, on what on who has sovereignty and we shouldn't be doing that. And I think that'll be, be more stabilizing uh, both both for U.S. interests as well as in those disputes themselves. I don't think it serves the interests of any countries in the region, including Southeast Asian nations, for us to be sort of contributing to the military tensions over those disputes. Mm hmm. Okay, I want to move to Taiwan now. Um, Taiwan, uh, not literally. I'm not going to move to Taiwan. I, I would. I, I've actually advocated for it. My wife isn't crazy about the place, unfortunately. But um, <laughs> Taiwan has been very much in the news, as I've said, uh, because of, among other things, Secretary of State Pompeo's announcement on January 9th. Uh, but even without that 11th hour mine-laying activity by Pompeo, it's it's a, it's a fraught, very difficult, and obviously pivotal issue from Beijing's perspective. It's the biggest single issue. Uh, in your paper, you describe a kind of perverse effect that comes of the U.S. staging exercises in the vicinity of the Taiwan Strait, and in all things that seem to signal uh, tacitly or otherwise support for independence, that this actually makes things worse for Taipei. Uh, explain how that works, how this perverse impact takes place, um, and how a show of U.S. support actually ends up making things tougher for Taiwan. Well, I think if you want to answer that question, Kaiser, you really have to understand what has been the role of Taiwan in the U.S.-China relationship. Taiwan was a critical issue that facilitated, dealing with Taiwan facilitated the ability of the United States and China to normalize their relationship back in the 1970s. During that period, um, the two sides certainly did not agree on uh, what was the status of Taiwan and what should ultimately be done about it necessarily. I mean, the U.S. position was, um, we don't care what the ultimate outcome is of Taiwan as long as it's reached peacefully and without coercion. And the Chinese themselves agreed, we will place a peaceful uh, resolution of the Taiwan issue at the top of our priority, which would be a shift from their previous policy, which was basically to invade and seize Taiwan. Uh, and But in return, the United States would acknowledge that uh, there is uh, one Chinese government, and it did not challenge the Chinese notion that Taiwan was part of China. Now, the problem is that since that time, there has been a very significant evolution in the attitudes of people on Taiwan and in the U.S.-China relationship that has really moved in the direction of viewing Taiwan increasingly in terms of Taiwan's own politics as an independent state and in terms of the U.S.-China relationship as, in some sense, a strategic location mm -hmm. because of the overall U.S.-China rivalry. 
Now, what the moves that Pompeo has taken recently in nullifying um, the limitations that had existed and evolved out of the U.S.-China normalization on U.S. relations with Taiwan, which are supposed to be unofficial because we no longer recognize Taiwan as the government of China, and we don't recognize it as a sovereign independent nation either, given our acceptance through our agreement with the Chinese, what we, when you take away those limitations and you raise the idea of the possibility of establishing relations with Taiwan that in all shape and form are really official relations, you are communicating to the Chinese that essentially you no longer are abiding by that one China agreement. You no longer necessarily support the idea that we don't care what side, we don't care how Taiwan ends up as long as it's peaceful. And we do recognize that the Chinese have said that they have a one China view. We have our own one China policy. It's not the same as the Chinese, but it does acknowledge it. And, and so if, if we do away with those limitations, then we are communicating the message to the Chinese that we are moving away from the one China policy. That then will allow them to move away from their commitment to put a priority on the peaceful resolution of the problem. Yeah, yeah. So it's a delicate it's a delicate issue. And, and, and the Trump administration in recent months has not treated it like that at all. It has basically simply said all of these limitations on our relations with Taiwan are not good because we have to support our democratic friend. Uh, and that's all there is to it. And the Chinese will just have to live with it. Yeah. Well, the Chinese won't live with it. Yeah, that is regrettable. And it's a really fraught issue for people, I think, who recognize, as I think we all should, that it is a vibrant democratic society. And the Taiwanese have every reason to expect that they shouldn't be treated as second-class citizens in the world. So this pits our commitments to democracy against our commitments, that is, you know, our diplomatic commitments made in the past. And that, as you say, are the underpinning of this most consequential bilateral relationship. So, yeah, it's really tough. You guys advocate that Taiwan, with security support from from Washington, should develop what you call a porcupine strategy. Uh, what are the priorities in a porcupine strategy? What, what's the role that the U.S. would play in such a strategy? I mean, would, would it be supplying um, particular weapons platforms, or what, what would it be? What would our role be? So I think there's the question of what's our role in you know, at, at this point and in peacetime and in preparation and what's the role during an actual conflict. Um, you know, in the first part, uh, which is where we spend a little more time in the report, Chi- Taiwan really does need to be developing capabilities that are more oriented towards coastal defense and resilience and, you know, that they retain the ability to survive an initial Chinese attack and sort of uh, last longer um, for time for the United States to apply other levers to influence the outcome. So the United States should be selling some defensive weaponry like anti-ship missiles, like the harpoons that we just sold. So I actually think that some of the weapons that the United States has recently sold to Taiwan actually could have a stabilizing effect because they deter the likelihood of a Chinese attack because they they would really raise the cost for China and make that kind of attack much less likely to succeed. That said, there are a lot of ways in which the the Taiwan military really needs to improve its capabilities, such as just basically stockpiling ammunition or increasing its training and readiness. A lot of observers have identified a lot of really fundamental problems in the way that the Taiwan military 
is just not prepared for this kind of conflict with with China. And so, you know, one argument we make in this report is that, you know, if Taiwan is and there are there are, of course, people in Taiwan, including, you know, the uh, recently retired head of the Taiwan military who have made these arguments. So there is some awareness there. And what we're arguing is that we need to use a little bit more leverage to get Taiwan to make those kind of contributions to its own defense and to be more serious about it. If they want the United States to to come to their defense, then they also need to be serious about that defense. So maybe we should consider making some of our arms sales con- d- d- conditional on Taiwan, really investing in those kinds of training and readiness and a stockpile of ammunition and building its defense industrial base in a way that could enable it to survive longer in a conflict. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, once a conflict broke out, I think that a lot of people have, uh, there's, there's a lot of concern about, you know, whether we'd be able to prevail in that, in that military conflict. But I think this kind of porcupine strategy would increase the chances that the United States could come in later in a conflict, whether that's militarily or through using non-military levers. And this is something we recommend in the report, which is to, you know, use to, to explore an, a more creative contingency planning about how we could use economic or diplomatic pressure to get China to back down uh, in, a, in a conflict over Taiwan. You know, the United States has a position that's called the six assurances as part of its uh, policy. It's not it's not a law. It's it's not um, it's not a binding set of, of views, but it has been repeated by subsequent administrations ever since normalization. And that states essentially that the United States should not uh, talk with China about its military assistance to Taiwan. Uh, so the United States can't engage with the Chinese over anything like mutual assurances on limiting their deployments in some areas and even their development of size of certain weapon systems, numbers of weapon systems in return for the United States not doing certain things in the area of selling certain types of weapon systems to Taiwan. The U.S. won't talk about that. Right, right. And I think that is probably a mistake or the U.S. should begin to think about uh, what kind of quid pro quos it might be able to reach with the Chinese. But this is a political hot potato in the United States. Absolutely. If you even suggest that you want to talk to the Chinese about this problem, people's hair immediately ignites. <laughs> and so you have all of these you know, people who are just going to start screaming, you know, appeasement, you're selling Taiwan out, you're selling them down the river. But let's be honest about this. We're trying to establish and maintain a situation, we mean in the United States, where we are basically continuing to kick the can down the road, that we're, we're continuing to try to maintain some level of mutual deterrence and mutual reassurance so that at some point, the two sides, Taiwan and the mainland, can reach some kind of more stable understanding. So it is really a, a, a holding action on the part of the United States and it's one that I don't think, given China's increased military power and given the trajectory of U.S.-China relations towards greater and greater levels of contestation of, of, of an adversarial relationship, this, rela- this Taiwan issue is going to become un- really unstable. Yeah, you're very blunt about that, that there are very unfavorable trends that Taiwan faces. Uh, I mean, obviously, it comes down to this you know familiar advice that we've long heard that neither Taipei nor D.C. should provoke Beijing. You see how many people, not just in Taiwan, but in the U.S. as well, would find that, though, to be deeply unsatisfying. I mean, well, sure, is there, is I, there I, a I, way for, for policy to, to reverse these unfavorable trends, short of, you know, us simply out-competing China? 
Well, I think you have to you have to certainly understand that the Chinese themselves contribute to this problem. It's not all just one side. The Chinese themselves have dismissed Tsai Ing-wen completely as a you know splitist. Uh, they won't deal with her. They don't take anything she says in any way as being credible. They're fearful that she's just the beginning of a slide towards uh, full independence with the U.S. backing it. Um, and I think that the Chinese need to look at their own situation. Their one country, two systems approach, the way, it, the way it's been certainly applied to Hong Kong, is not going to be the solution. Uh, they've got to develop more creative ways of engaging with the Taiwanese themselves that really can be in some way more reassuring. But they're certainly undermining their own efforts by what they've been doing in Hong Kong. Yeah. And in other places as well. So the Chinese need to, if this is that important an issue for the Chinese, Taiwan, and the question of unification, and if they understand the real dangers of using their military to try to resolve this, and believe you, me, a, a conflict with the Chinese over Taiwan will not be limited to Taiwan. It will go well beyond that. And if I think they recognize that, but they need to recognize that their strategy in dealing with Taiwan has not worked. Right. They have to have something that's much more attractive to Taiwan. They've got to be much more flexible. Well, listeners should tune in for the next episode, which will be with Paul here about a couple of papers that he wrote, uh, one that he co-wrote with John Culver in The National Interest, all about Taiwan. So lots more on Taiwan to come on Seneca. I want to move now to the Korean Peninsula and get Jessica back in the action here for a bit. Uh, and apologies for, for leaving you out of so much of it. But, you know, you are the Korea expert here. Uh, your paper calls for ending the Korean War at last. Uh, for pushing for a peace treaty between Seoul and Pyongyang, and on that basis, pushing for phased denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Talk about how you think the Biden administration can facilitate that, how it can bring Beijing uh, both into the peace process and into the denuclearization process, and uh, what incentives it might provide. Sure. I mean, you know, it, just uh, tying it back to what Michael said earlier about uh, hot potato <laughs> or politically dicey issues uh, facing America in, in East Asia, certainly North Korea is one of those. Um, and we know that, um, you know, there are folks who have either deliberately or unintentionally misunderstood the problem uh, of the North Korea issue. You know, some say it's a nuclear problem. And, you know, besides, it's so far away, even if a war broke out, it wouldn't hurt Americans. I mean, Senator Lindsey Graham said that in those words. Um, and so I think we need to take a step back and understand uh, and appreciate some basic facts about uh, the conflict there. I mean, the, the most salient point being that the Korean War is still technically ongoing. Uh, and so what I've advocated in pieces I've written, you know, at the Quincy Institute uh, has been for President Biden to go ahead and end that war. You know, announce that America, you know, does not uh, consider uh, it to be a party of the Korean War anymore. We never signed a peace agreement, but it's over, uh, you know, for us. And we're going to uh, go ahead and pursue a peace agreement to replace the armistice agreement that temporarily, mm -hmm. you know, stopped the fighting. So I think those are some practical steps that President Biden can make. Uh, and I think they're con entirely consistent with what the American public wants. They don't want the U.S. to be dragged into another Korean war. No way. I mean, that would be disastrous on so many levels. Uh, right. You know, Americans, by and large, are much more restrained and pragmatic than I think Washington uh, gives them credit. And so I think part of what we're trying to do through our writing is to show through polling by Eurasia Group Foundation and others that show that, you know, America should negotiate with countries we don't agree with. And so I think there's a lot that can be done on the Korean Peninsula by Biden that 
would uh, move us forward a lot more than we are, uh, we are currently. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One final topic that I, I do think it's important for us to get to, and, and that's human rights. How would you characterize the overall approach that you recommend that the new administration takes when it comes to advancing human rights? Because uh, there are a lot of issues. I mean, the most glaring, of course, being Xinjiang and the ongoing atrocity with the internment of over a million Uyghurs. Xinjiang has gotten the lion's share of attention recently, but of course there are ongoing human rights problems in Tibet and in other uh, Minzu areas of China. And of course there's Hong Kong, where just in recent days we've seen a number of opposition lawmakers being rounded up. It's very disturbing, all these things connected to the national security law. Uh, What do we do going forward? What is the general approach to human rights in China that you recommend? Yeah, so this is uh, it's a difficult issue, and I think the the real problem is that the U.S. approach to human rights, especially in the last few years, has actually probably harmed the cause of human rights in the region, and it's done so because you know Secretary Pompeo and others in the Trump administration have really subsumed the human rights issue within geopolitical competition, where they've sort of framed China as a threat to the American way of life, and this has actually deepened cynicism and nationalism in China and that it is made it has made them feel that you know we're we don't really care about the human rights issue we care about you know sticking it to the Chinese Communist Party right just using and, human rights as a bludgeon right yeah exactly so what we what we argue and and, and it, it's not just that it's there's there's a lot of sort of inconsistencies and hypocrisies in the way the United States has approached human rights you know Secretary Pompeo given his record of anti-muslim rhetoric and of course that of the the administration more broadly with the Muslim visa ban, et cetera, are not particularly credible messengers when it comes to defending the rights of Uyghur Muslims or of, or of Rohingya Muslims or, you know, other, other oppressed minorities in the region. So, you know, I think there's, there's some real issues there. Uh, But what we, what we advocate is for a new approach that is, that, that is first of all, you know, not that, that decouples human rights from this, geopolitical or economic competition. You know, that's another issue where sometimes it's, it was it was a little hard to tell if a sanction that the United States was applying on China over some human rights issue was was really about the human rights issue or was it kind of backdoor protectionism. So I think that this is where, you know, we really need to de- uh, compartmentalize human rights away from those other issues, not to de-emphasize the importance of human rights, but really to make it more credible that we actually care about the human rights and not the, you know, protectionism or the geopolitical competition. But then beyond that, we we also argue for the need for engaging in a more multilateral approach rather than you know unilateral shaming and sanctions. So we need to work with other countries and not just Europeans, but also Asian nations and uh, nations from relevant cultural communities like Muslim majority nations when we're addressing abuses towards Muslims like those in Xinjiang. And that's hard. You know, we we get that the United States to some extent has tried to do that in the past. And, you know, countries have their sort of self-interest and their relationship with China. They don't want to rock the boat, but we need to devote more interest to that. And if we are decoupling it from this broader geopolitical competition, I I actually think we're more likely to get traction on those kinds of issues. Um, And then we also need to continue advocating for human rights in the United Nations. We need to, you know, re-engage in those UN human rights institutions. The Trump administration tended to leave them or to even attack those institutions because they sometimes would say because they were, you know, in the pocket of authoritarians like China. But that's all the more reason to be there engaging and trying to influence them and shape global norms in a better direction. 
And then, you know, the third plank of our proposal is to really use more targeted support to repressed groups through things like immigration and refugee policy mm-hmm. and through, you know, targeted law enforcement to prevent uh, harassment of uh, Chinese nationals or other other nationals that are in the United States and to not ourselves, you know, engage in that kind of harassment in an undue uh, in an undue discriminatory manner towards visitors and, and immigrants from from East Asia and from China. And then lastly, you know, I think there's there's uh, there is always a room for direct dialogue with repressive governments. And of course, that's a lot of times it's not going to make a difference. I think we have to be realistic to some extent about the, our our ability to really change the Chinese government's calculus on these human rights issues or other governments. But I think we need to signal that they matter to us. And we can do that in dialogue in ways that shows that we care about those issues and that we're not trying to use it to just as a public shaming campaign. And, you know, when when in certain countries, when the time is right, that kind of direct dialogue can help facilitate change, um, you know, when when the underlying conditions are already shifting in that direction. Tough, tough, tough issue. One last question. Let me ask all three of you. How on track do you think we are, given what you've been able to glean of the Biden administration from the state and NSC and other appointments to date, uh, including the China director, Laura Rosenberger, uh, which was just announced very recently? You know, but uh, we're talking about uh, Blinken and CIA director uh, Bill Burns, and from from statements that people like you know Jake Sullivan or uh, uh, Tony Blinken have made to date. Well, I think I think the Biden administration is showing that it's um, it's it's going to repopulate the uh, national security structure with people who are very well known and who have a proven track record. Um, many with the Obama administration um, and who uh, have the ability to work within the government and interact with other agencies and with people outside of the United States. So they're, they're seasoned people, they're professional people, um, but, and I think as a result of that, you're going to see a change in U.S. foreign policy that's going to become much more recognizable. It's going to go away from this this myopic, you know, single-minded America first uh, viewpoint, um, which which ended up irritating uh, our allies and alienating others. And it's going to be, I think, more oriented towards trying to cooperate and develop um, positive sum outcomes in a in a whole lot of areas. But but it still remains to be seen uh, whether uh, this team is going to recognize the kind of fundamental changes that we highlight in this report that have occurred, particularly in Asia, that have changed the position of the United States in the region significantly. Uh, and really, I think, in a way that we cannot return to the, uh, the, old, the old ways in dealing with things. That's right. So I, I think there needs to be recognition of that. And secondly, there needs to be a clear understanding about what exactly our security environment looks like globally and regionally. Is great power competition the, by all means, dominant feature of the global order today that should really be the starting point for our strategies in so many other areas? I think the underlying assumption of our report is that that is not the case, that we vastly overemphasize that issue. And in the process, we end up undermining our interests in a lot of other areas. So I think it's still unclear to me whether or not the Biden administration is going to continue with the same sort of mindset in many ways. Its its message will be softer. Its message will be more cooperative. Its message will be more engagement oriented, if you will. But whether or not 
that that is going to actually translate into policies that really depart from uh, the Trump administration in some ways is still, I think, an unclear issue. We haven't yet seen. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Michael, Jessica, Rachel, thank you so much for making the time and congrats on the publication of this very important policy paper. Uh, let's move on now to recommendations. First, a quick reminder that SubChina has just published its annual red paper, and it's free to read this year on our website. Don't forget to subscribe to SubChina Access if you like the work that we're doing and you want to make sure we can continue to do it. Okay, recommendations. Rachel, why don't you go first? What you got for us? Yeah, so uh, I'd like to recommend an album that I've been really enjoying recently by Ray Zaragoza. It's uh, called Women in Color, and oh. it's, I think, a, a great sort of uh, album for this moment. And I, I, yeah, I really like that. And then um, I guess for a book that I, I would recommend, um, probably I, I love Ursula Le Guin. She's mm-hmm. always my sort of go-to recommendation. And you know, I just kind of love everything I've ever, ever read by her. But the Earthsea my favorite trilogy, is, yeah. Yeah, Earthsea Tehanu was my favorite in that series, but I think my very favorite of hers is The Dispossessed, and I, I keep, ah, right. keep coming back to that again and again, so love oh, that. fantastic recommendations. Great, great. Thank you very much. Jessica, what about you? What do you have? Well, I um, have been um, struggling to stay away from my laptop and my smartphone, when, even when I'm not supposed to be working. And so yeah. one way that I've tried to address that is through doing uh, puzzles. And so I've, I've gotten into these 1,000 piece puzzles that have wow. kept me off the screen and, you know, kind of slowed things down um, so that I can process what I'm seeing and reading. So highly recommend puzzles for folks who uh, feel like they're impulsively reaching for their phone, you know, even when they uh, need to slow down and, and, and not be inundated. <laughs> they had a couple of puzzles at this beach house that I went to with my family over the summer. Uh, one of these, you know, rentals. We were there for a week with uh, our other mm-hmm. bubble couple. Uh, and they, we ended up just yet spending an awful lot of time doing puzzles. It was fun. <laughs> it was great. I really enjoyed it. Yes. Great. Good, good suggestion. Jigsaw puzzles. All right, Michael, what do you have for us? Well, um, aside from uh, my readings, which are primarily in my field, so I don't do a whole lot of um, other readings, what I do for uh, enjoyment and relaxation is I oil paint. And I've been painting for about six years now, six or seven years, and um, I paint... uh, portraits, landscapes, still lifes, um, using oil. And I find it to be an extremely relaxing uh, activity, therapy of a sort. It allows you to really focus your mind. You have to keep attentive to certain things. And I would highly recommend it to anybody who wants to have a good hobby and, 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 and alternative to their work and one that will really uh, help them relax and concentrate in different ways. Fantastic. Oh, that, that's something that I've planned for my retirement for a very long time. I, I do It's not as it. hard as you would think. Most people say, oh, oil painting. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you mean like Rembrandt? And they think it's just this gigantic hurdle that you just really couldn't do. Yes, there are issues with it because it doesn't dry that quickly and you have solvents and all that sort of thing, but it, that's not a big problem. 
it's not nearly as as daunting as many people might think. It's it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. Oh, great recommendation. Uh, mine for this week is the book Dark Mirror by Barton Gelman. It's about the Snowden revelations, uh, but it's really about you know, the whole Snowden saga from the perspective of one of the investigative journalists who broke the story, Barton Gelman. Uh, his whole fraught relationship with the IC, his his whole security regimen, which is just fascinating, you know, that he goes into real detail about how he was able to keep operational security. Uh, it's about, you know, the ethical issues he had to reckon with. And for that alone, I mean, the book is really worthwhile, but there's also just a ton about Snowden himself, who emerges as a really interesting character. I mean, he's he's really, uh, you know, love him or hate him, he's, he's interesting. Uh, it's, uh, you know, about, obviously about the substance of the PRISM program and, and uh, other programs that the NSA was running, which are, are really kind of frightening. Uh, the friend of mine who recommended the book to me told me that uh, before they read the the, the book. They, they didn't really fully comprehend the reasons behind uh, the U.S. Inter, uh, intelligence community's concerns about Chinese technology companies, but now they fully understand it. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's worthwhile to connect it back to our field. Anyway, thank you again, all three of you, Michael, Jessica, Rachel. I, I look forward to having you all back on the program. Great. Thank you very much, much Kaiser. We really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Thanks Rachel. Thanks. Jessica, great to talk to you. Thank you, Kaiser. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at SupChina News, and make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care. Take care.